Please turn with me in the precious Word of God to the second chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 2. Our brother prayed from Nehemiah chapter 8 that Ezra and his assistants read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. May the Lord bless that same method this morning. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest The same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For... There is no respect of persons with God. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Thank you for this theological, polemical treatise that you have given us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of our beloved brother Paul. Let me first of all give you a very quick Breakdown of the second chapter. In the first four verses, the apostle is proving that all men are without excuse under God's judgment. We already have seen the words, so that they are without excuse, in verse 20 of chapter 1, as it described the heathen nations of the Gentiles that were given over to idolatry. But here we have it again, 
If you commit any of the crimes in the 32nd verse of that first chapter, those 23 sins, if you commit any of them, even though you may judge others because you think yourself superior, you are without excuse yourself. In fact, you condemn yourself, and God condemns you as well in those first four verses, so that all men are without excuse. In verses 5 through 11, the argument of the apostle is that men are judged by an absolute standard of righteousness and truth. He does not allow anything else to come into play. They are judged by their actions. Do this and get eternal life. Do that and get eternal damnation. The argument is simply to prove the condemnation of all men and to show that the standard of God's judgment is objectivity and objective righteousness. There is no subjectivity to it. There's no emotion to it. There's no place for the personal or position or influence with the God of heaven. He's going to judge strictly, plainly, truthfully by your actions. That is part of his argument to prove the condemnation of all men. Romans 2 has nothing in it on how you are to gain eternal life. And I'll be spending lots of time to prove that point. These verses are not telling you how to gain eternal life. Because if you've read the third chapter, you know he's going to say, There is none that doeth good. No, not one. His argument is not to tell anyone how to gain eternal life. His argument is not to tell anyone what the evidence of eternal life is. We know those things from other places. His argument is to condemn all men by the objective standard of God's judgment being it's strictly based on works, character and conduct, not by position, person, influence, privilege, or anything else that they've had in life. Verses 12 through 16, the Gentiles are condemned by their internal law of conscience, wherein God has given them the law of God sufficiently that they are without excuse. Following verse 16, the Jews are dealt with by name for the first time, that they will be judged by the law that they were given, placed in their hands by Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. Verses 24 through 27 will describe the condemnation that the Jews are under by their being superior Gentiles in the earth that keep the law of God better than they do. So that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles by the wickedness of the Jews in spite of all their external privileges. And then in the last couple of verses, we have a wonderful declaration of the true identity of a Jew. One who's been born again by the power of God and his sins cut off by the circumcision of Christ. It's a work of God and God deserves all the praise for it because there's not a thing a man can do to circumcise himself internally. But God is the one worthy of the thanksgiving and praise. This chapter continues Paul's long argument that began in verse 18 of chapter 1 and extends all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3 to condemn all men. He is going to say at the, at the, in verse 19 of chapter 3, I believe it is, we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that all are under sin. Well, you're supposed to be learning that as we go through chapter 2, so that when we come to chapter 3 and verse 19, and Paul says that, you say, Amen. We have definitely established that fact. So that he is laying a foundation of total condemnation and universal guilt of all men before Almighty God. He will then present 
the Savior and how men lay hold of that Savior for the comfort and assurance of their own hearts. The Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ by free and sovereign grace, and the comfort and assurance is by faith alone as we lay hold of Him. And of course, that faith is to be followed with good works because good works flow from true faith. This is a needed foundation to cut off the arguments of any that would think there might be human cooperation involved in their salvation. This is to cut off the hopes of Jews that might take some measure of comfort in that we are the people of God. We are the seed of Abraham in whom the whole world was to be blessed. Surely God isn't going to deal with us as strictly as he does the Gentiles. This was Paul's enemy in almost every epistle that he wrote. He had to fight against Jewish legalism, Jewish self-righteousness, and Jewish confidence in the fact that Abraham was their father. They had their male member operated on, called the rite of circumcision, and they had the written law of God and the worship of God. They took confidence in those things that God would deal with them differently than he would those darkened, blinded, idiotic Gentiles. And so Paul's going to take care of all of this as, we build, as he builds his case. Once established, the good news of a substitutionary Savior is wonderful news indeed. These chapters help us appreciate the Savior that we just sung about in some good songs. We want to deal with these verses this day. Lord, have mercy upon us. Verse 1 of chapter 2. The first word, therefore. Therefore is drawing a conclusion, especially from the 32nd verse of the first chapter. Because in the 32nd verse... After listing 23 crimes, the apostle wrote these words. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things, the 23 sins and any other sin that is like those 23 sins. That's what the demonstrative word such means. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Not only do wicked Gentiles sin against God by these 23 crimes, but they know that the consequence of these 23 crimes is death, and they go ahead and sin anyway, and they take pleasure in others who commit these 23 crimes. They take pleasure by friendship, they take pleasure by entertainment. We want to remember both as we go through life, that we do not want to find ourselves in that 32nd verse. Because we can make a choice to hate those 23 sins, keep them out of our own life, and keep them away from our eyes, that we will set no wicked thing before our eyes, as I taught you last Sunday from Psalm 101 and verse 3. Therefore, Paul is drawing a conclusion from the universal guilt of those 23 sins because there's not a man alive that can't find himself condemned by those 23 crimes. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Thou. You won't have to worry about that word if you were to read one of our modern versions. Even a modern version called the New King James Bible. You wouldn't have to fuss with a word like thou. But we're thankful for the word thou. And let me take a moment to remind you of something that you ought to know. 
Thou and thee, thy and thine, are second person, singular and pro, uh, singular pronouns in high English. The King James Bible was not written in Elizabethan English. It was written in high English, a language used for contracts and formal writing in the nation of England. It is the only language, the only form of English, that is able to take the singular and plural distinction in the second person pronouns from Hebrew and Greek and accurately put it in the English language. When we speak today in the second person, we say you. You did this or that. You need to do this or that. You is vague because there is no singular or plural distinction in the word you. I would say you need to do this if I was talking to 20. I would say you need to do this if I was talking to one. Karen, get excited about this. Come on. I'm looking at you. The modern Bible translations have taken out the these and the thous, and they make fun of the these and the thous, and they tell us that the King James Bible is not an accurate reflection of the Hebrew and the Greek, while they use you in their translations and take away the these and the thous that accurately reflect the distinction in the second person pronoun. When the Bible uses a T pronoun... Thy, thee, thine, a T, it is always singular. When it uses a Y pronoun for the second person, ye, you, your, it's always plural. Sweet, isn't it? Sweet! The King James Bible. It makes that distinction so when you are reading a verse, you know that if an individual person is being addressed or if a group is being addressed, you know that it is one person or it is two or more based on whether it is a T pronoun or a Y pronoun. Praise the Lord for the high English of our King James Bibles. You walk in to a a bookstore today, a Christian bookstore, and ask for a Bible. And say, what about the King James Bible? They'll say, well, listen, we've got more accurate translations than that. Here, here's the new King James Bible. It gets rid of all those these and the thous. Do you know that what he just said in those two sentences? He just lied to you. It's not more accurate. It's less accurate. Because they got rid of words that we want. We want that word thou. Because Paul is getting very personal. He's reducing it down to individual men. He's taking one man at a time with that singular pronoun thou. More accurate. I love the these and the thous. If you're to go do some some further research on high English and the distinction in the second person pronouns, it just, it just builds your love of God and what he's done with the King James Bible and how foolish and stupid the salesmen are. And of course they are. They're little clerks. They're making minimum wage. You know, they're in a Christian bookstore. They don't have a clue about anything except to make fun of the King James Bible and try to sell one of these new ones by mocking it as having these and thous. And we want to get rid of that kind of a language because we wouldn't want to worship God reverently because reverent worship is acceptable to God. We wouldn't want to worship Him that way. Let's get rid of such reverent words like thee and thou from the high English of our fathers and let's use the street language, the colloquial language of the idiots that walk our streets today. But that's not how we ought to address God. We ought to address Him as formally as our language allows. Why would we do anything less? 
I'll tell you one thing. If you were to meet any head of state, you would address him as sir. And if that head of state had any authority and power and you didn't address him as sir, he'd just throw you out on your ear because you're worthless as a piece of humanity. And so when we address God, we ought to elevate our language, not reduce it. But I'm I'm getting off on a rabbit trail that I don't need to pursue any further. But just rejoice when you come to the second word of Romans chapter 2. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. The same language from verse 20 of chapter 1. So that they are without excuse. What does it mean to be without excuse? It means to be inexcusable. Therefore, therefore, because of the list of crimes in verses 29 through 31, oh man, you are without excuse as well. I said that all the heathen Gentiles were without excuse in verse 20 of chapter 1, but you are without excuse as well because the list of sins in 29 through 31 got you 5, 10, 20 different ways. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Let's work on that thou, though, for another minute from another angle. Thou. Paul has not used a singular pronoun all the way through chapter 1. He deals in verse 18 all the way through 32 in plural pronouns. Look at verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to. Verse 26. For this cause God gave them up to. Verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them Verse 22, professing themselves. Verse 20, the last clause, so that they are without excuse. Verse 19, the last word, for God hath showed it unto them. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Plural. I want you to notice he's been using plural pronouns all the way through the first chapter, and all of a sudden this this chapter 2... Boom! Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Each of us needs to examine our own hearts in the light of what is described in verses 28 through 32 of that first chapter. Am I guilty of any of those sins? If I am guilty of any of those sins, how can I rail on others who are guilty of those sins since the condemnation that is upon them is the same that is upon me. How can I despise others? How can I look down on others when I am just as guilty as anyone in chapter 1? Because the list of crimes given has me handcuffed, manacled, and ready for death. Because I deserve to die as much as anyone. So he gets very personal with it. We do not want to limit these words in verse 1. But I want to teach you something that the Lord has shown me very clearly in the last few weeks. I have stated in the previous 21 sermons from Romans chapter 1 that God did not address the Jews until the 17th verse of chapter 2. I am withdrawing that statement and changing it. He is beginning with the Jew in verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'm going to prove it to you by at least 10 marks right now. And I thank God for showing it to me very clearly by, ex- by study and prayer and meditation that we don't miss what the Apostle Paul is doing in wisdom and subtlety against his arch enemy. It is not Gentiles. 
the Gentiles heard the word of God gladly. It is Jews who took confidence in their persons because they were descendants of Abraham, who took confidence in their position because they were citizens of God's nation, who took confidence in their privileges because they had been given the external worship of God, who took hope in the fact that since we have the word of God, who took confidence in their right of circumcision, which Paul, do you know that Paul is going to have to deal against the Jews all the way to the first verse of chapter 12? Watch. 3-1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Why does Paul have to write that rhetorical question? Because he's dealing with Jews. 3-1. Look at 4-1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? This is so important to understand the book of Romans for us. Gentiles who are not Arminians. We want to realize that Paul's audience and Paul's enemy and those with whom Paul is arguing are Jewish legalists, self-righteous, self-confident, trusting in Abraham, the law, circumcision, national privileges, and external worship. 4.1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, whose father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found... How about chapter 7 and verse 1? Know ye not, I could go to the other chapters, every time you find the word law, who's he speaking to? Jews, not to Gentiles. Look at Romans 7, 1. Know ye not, brethren? Look at what's in parentheses. For I speak to them that know the law. Who's he addressing when he says, I speak to them that know the law? Jews again. Look at 9, 1. Or 9.3, let's get 9.3, it's easier for you to understand, grasp. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's dealing with his fleshly relatives in the nation of Israel. 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is. How about 11.1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? What people is he talking about here? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Look at this. Amen. Have you read Galatians? Who does he have to deal with in Galatians from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6? Jews who trusted Abraham and the law and their national privileges and external worship and circumcision as being sufficient to help them get to heaven. And if they heard of Christ, they added those things, one or all, to Christ. How about Ephesians? Paul has to deal with it there by pointing out that God has broken down that middle wall of partition in chapters 2 and 3. How about Colossians? He has to deal with it again. How about Philippians chapter 3? We are not of the circumcision or the concision as he mocks them. How about the book of Hebrews? What was Hebrews written for? To show the Hebrews that they didn't have God's religion in the Old Testament, it was in the New. Back to Romans chapter 2. Back to Romans chapter 2. I couldn't care less about having to correct something I've ever implied or said incorrectly as long as God shows us the truth so that we can have it correct. We want it correct. I don't care whether it comes in the first year of my ministry, the last year of my ministry, when I was a child, or when I'm on my deathbed. Just show us the truth, Lord. Show us the truth. Let us get our arms around as much of it as you'll give us.
Therefore, thou. Paul changes drastically right here. Now, Paul never saw chapter 2. Paul never wrote an epistle with 16 chapters to the church at Rome. He wrote one run-on letter. We put the chapters in there. So don't think, well, Paul's starting anew. He wrote chapter 1 on the first day, and then four days later he wrote chapter... No, 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 no. Paul's just running, writing a letter to the saints at Rome, but he changes drastically by going to this special, powerful, singular pronoun. Therefore, thou. We don't want to limit this to just Jews, because any self-righteous, self-confident judge of others fits into verse 1 and the verses that follow. However, let me show you that his real target is the Jew. He is going to identify who he means by that singular pronoun thou in the 17th verse. And he's going to say it this way. Behold. See, behold. Now I'm going to tell you what I've been up to. Behold. Look at what what I'm about to identify. Behold, thou art called a Jew. He tells you why he was using that singular pronoun and why he used it in verse 1, verse 3, and other places because he's addressing the Jew. Behold, thou art called a Jew. If thou art called a Jew, then it's the Jews he's addressing in verse 1 because he doesn't change his pronoun. He continues with the thou. He is going after the Jews, but he doesn't identify them until he gets them warmed to his Judgment of verses 1 through 16. You say, would Paul do something like that? Are you telling us he wrote with guile? Amen. Does he tell us that in the Bible? I, does, does he ever say, I caught you with, I caught you with guile? Paul said that. Does the Lord Jesus Christ ever teach his apostles to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves? Did he ever write an epistle where he wouldn't tell anyone where, who the author was? Is it the epistle to the Hebrews? Does every other epistle Paul wrote, does he start right out by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, like right here. But Hebrews, he didn't. Back to Romans chapter 2. Therefore thou. The usage of singular pronouns starts right here, and the thou is identified in verse 17 when Paul puts the, the ultimate pressure upon the Jew. But he's already addressing them right now, as the primary focus of these first 16 verses. Let's keep going. Gentiles have been addressed in the third person throughout chapter 1. Now he's in the second person. In chapter 1, the Gentiles were these people over here, they, them. When we change to you or thou, plural or singular, that's second person. He's bringing it down home to the people that he's truly addressing. The Gentiles so far have been those over there, which the Jews looked at them that way. Those over there, the heathen nations, they're so lost and blind and darkened as sodomites, idolaters. We've had the worship of God. We're the only ones on earth that have had the worship of God. So Paul has them over there. Listen, do you know what a Jew has said all the way through chapter 1? A four-letter word, it starts with A, and it's got an exclamation point at the end. Amen, brother. The Jews are just rejoicing at Paul describing the Gentiles in the vile judgment that God poured upon them. Okay. Gentiles are addressed in the third person in this chapter. Look at as soon as he gets to verse 14. 
For when the Gentiles... Now, why is he using the third person for the Gentiles if he's speaking to the Gentiles as his primary focus? Isn't this... Do you see it now? Oh, I'm ashamed, but I'm not. I'm excited to be ashamed. If you know what I mean. Listen, all I want is God's truth. If he shows us six phases of salvation, we're going to preach six. If he shows us four, we're going to get rid of one. Isn't that the truth? We've got to do that. And we've got to always come to God's word with that. You know, there's a little tiny voice in me, and it's not very big, because I... I like to pound on it that tells me, you mean you're going to get up in front of those people and tell them that you were wrong? Oh, come on. Would it be the first time? Will it be the last time? No. But I want you to get the power of this. Why did Paul write Hebrews all the way through without telling them who he was? Because they wouldn't have accepted it as readily. Look at how he starts off. He had the Jews shouting amen as Hebrews was read to them. God who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Do you know what every Jew would have been saying? Amen. Yes. God is our God. Our fathers. He ignored the Gentiles. And then he just starts taking apart the Jewish religion of the Old Covenant and presenting Jesus Christ as superior to every point. But that's another subject for another time and preaching through another epistle. Let's get back. Look at 14. Why is he referring to Gentiles in the third person as they and them over there while he's addressing someone so specifically as thou, O man? The haughtiest judgment found in the Bible, the the, the haughtiest people found in the Bible and the haughtiest people found in history is Jews toward Gentiles. So let's keep that in mind, because what are we dealing with in these first five verses? Haughty arrogance that someone is going to be excused from God's judgment by their position and privilege. Thinkest thou this, O man, that judges others, that thou shalt somehow escape the judgment of God? On what basis do you think that? The Gentiles knew better. They knew, verse 32, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. But there was another class of people that thought they would be excused. Jews, because they were God's chosen people. Because they had had minor surgery on their male member. Because they had the Lord of God given to Moses on tablets and brought down from Mount Sinai. Because they had the external worship of God. Because they had the temple of the Lord. Do any of you that have been around for a while remember Jeremiah chapter 7? The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. We are delivered. To do all these abominations. God delivers us. Because we are his children. And we have his temple. And we can commit these abominations. With impunity. Are you with me? Oh this is powerful. And it fits the rest of the whole epistle of Romans. He is combating Jewish confidence. In salvation. And so if we get this down pat. We will not be confused in this epistle. By the language that sounds like he's endorsing Arminians. We'll know that he's attacking Jews instead. Okay, I gotta give you some more reasons. We don't just change anything because we, we feel like it. God's goodness, forbearance, and long suffering. Who are they shown far more to than the Gentiles? The Jews. Goodness? They were so blessed. 
to have the prophets of God, the worship of God, the oracles of God. Forbearance? Who was forgiven the most? The Jews, because they sinned against such greater light. To whom did God show the most long-suffering? The Jews. How many times did he tell Moses, step back and let me you know, incinerate the nation? Since the previous section, verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, would have puffed up the Jews because the way it condemned the Gentiles, it's obvious that Paul is now going after those who would be puffed up and who would look down in judgment on those in the first chapter. Now, in principle and indirectly, it applies to you and me as well. We can't judge. Listen, we can't read about sodomy like right over here on the table. We can't read about that and think, well, they're worthy of death. I haven't done anything like that. We've done sins right along beside them. Our sins are as inconvenient as what they're doing. Theirs is a little more against nature than maybe some of the ones we've done. But we are guilty before God and worthy of death as well as anyone. If a segment of humanity should think that they were respected and would escape God's judgment, it would have been the Jews. The self-righteous judges of others, the self-righteous judge, judge, the self-righteous judges of others are particularly the Jews. And let me show you. Turn, if you need to turn, to the 17th verse. And look at how Paul words it. And see if it doesn't fit perfectly with what we're just reading now. Verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law. You're not worried about a thing, because you've got the law of God. As long as you're making an effort to keep it, you're God's special people, and God's going to take care of you, and maketh thy boast of God. God is yours only. You're God's people. You're God's nation. Keep Look at this. And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent. You are better than those Benighted, blind, hardened Gentiles being instructed out of the law and are confident, look at the confidence, that thou thyself art a guide of the blind. Those blind Gentiles, you're their guide because you've got the law of God. A light of them which are in darkness. The darkness that we've been preaching about from Romans 1.18 all the way through 32. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes which has the form of knowledge and of the truth of the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, that condemnest another, that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Isn't that, an ex- isn't that a great commentary on the first three verses right within the second chapter? He is addressing the Jews because they rest in the law and think that they are approved of God by national heritage. By the privilege of having the written external revelation of God. It's described right there for us. This is Paul's constant enemy. When he gets to verse 9, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. He's describing God's judgment. He says in verse 8, the last three words, indignation and wrath. These are words that describe God's judgment. Indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish. Upon every soul of man that doeth evil. And then look what he says. Of the Jew first. When he talks about judgment, he puts the Jew first. And so when I read verses 1 through 8, I put the Jew first. Because Paul is keeping him first, even in matters of judgment. The Jew did not think he belonged first. The Jew thought the Gentile belonged first when it came to judgment. They, the Jew thought he came first when it came to blessing. But Paul, look at Paul. 
He starts out generally and subtly. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you Gentiles that look down on others, you're just as guilty as the rest of them. And then he just starts building his case because he's embraced the Jews and brought them in. Praise the Lord. Amen. Listen, the third, the third person in, in uh, verse 14 about the Gentiles, and the third person all the way through chapter 1, and then dealing in the second person, that totally changes who he's talking about. He's talking about these people over here, all through chapter 1, and then again at verses 12 through 16, because he's talking with the Gentiles, but he comes right back and uses that second person pronoun, thou, for the Jews that he's addressing, and he tells you it's the Jews in verse 17. I don't know which of the little evidences impresses you the most, but then altogether, there's no question about the change. No question. It's not, I'm 80% convinced, I'm 110% convinced. That what Paul is doing, it's wise, it's subtle, it's powerful, and it makes sense with the whole epistle of Romans because he is attacking the Jew that rests in the law and makes his boast of God and thinks he's going to escape the judgment of God. Let's come back to that first verse. I know that took a lot of time, but I, uh, I hope that it was worthwhile. Therefore, hope... Heavenly Father, I'll never be ashamed to say I was wrong because I'm always wrong and you're always right because the third chapter is going to remind me, let God be true, but every man a liar. Heavenly Father, show us what we do not see and bless us with light and understanding and open to our eyes thy law that we might behold wondrous things out of it and we shall preach them and believe them and defend them as if we had held them from the beginning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Lord. I love the Lord. He's always heard my supplication. He's always been kind to me. Even though I have been so unfaithful to Him. Thou art inexcusable. Oh, man. You Jewish man. Though I'm not letting you know that quite yet, but I'm getting to it in verse 17. Oh, man, that you would look down on those sinners of chapter 1, those blind, hardened Ignorant Gentiles that you would look down on them and despise them. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. You are just as much without excuse as they are in the 20th verse. I showed them creation. And they're without excuse because they worshipped the creature instead of the creator. They worshipped idols and images instead of the creator. But you, who know more, you, O man, that I'm about to lay into and tell them you've got revelation... You look down on them, even though you know that you're guilty of the crimes of verses 29 through 31. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. This applies to every one of us indirectly, but primarily Paul is making an argument against the Jews who look down on the Gentiles. But let us fear ourselves of being so self-righteous and confident that we can judge others. I I really taught all of this last Lord's Day. We look at sodomy and the vile affections that God gives women over to in verse 26, like we have up here on demonstration, and we think, I would never do anything like that. But we have. We have. And we we repeatedly do so. So it applies to us as well as God condemns Self-righteous confidence that you are better than others, for there is no difference. 
But we want to understand that particularly Paul is going after the haughty arrogance of Jews who thought themselves better than the ignorant, God-forsaken. And they knew that. Gentiles. And you know what? The Gentiles had been God-forsaken without God and hope in the world. They knew that God, make us thy boast of God. They thought, surely there is a different way of judgment when it comes to us. We're God's people. We're Abraham's children. Abraham's bosom. We're all going there. As long as we make a decent effort to keep the law of God that we've modified down so that we can live it perfectly every day. You know, as long as we do that, as long as we get circumcised, and as long as we make it to the temple once in a while, the temple is the Lord's. Man, we're, we're delivered to do these abominations. The Bible teaches us all that about them. When John the Baptist opened his mouth and started to preach, we have Abraham to our father. Oh, yeah? When Jesus opened his mouth to preach, we've never been in bondage to any man. We're Abraham's children. If ye were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. He tore into them. Do you understand? I can't, I'm not going to chase this rabbit any further. But I, I hope I've established the point, and I hope that the Bible's coming to bear on you, Old Testament, New Testament, epistles and gospels, that the Jews had a serious problem with self-confidence and haughty arrogance over the Gentiles. They were, they were inexcusable. All men have the propensity by the sin of pride to think themselves superior to others, but the Jews had a whole lot of reasons to do so. Reasons given by God that God had benefited and favored their nation. He's going to describe it here as the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, which were primarily properties of the Jews, primarily benefits that they had had. Whosoever thou art that judgest. You know, Isaiah 65 Isaiah 65 describes those, and, and God said they are a stink to me, and I hate them, that go around saying that I am holier than thou. Depart from me. Back off. I'm holier than thou. Did Jesus ever give a parable of a Pharisee praying and a publican praying? Was there an enormous difference between the two of them? Jesus was describing the religious, seminary-trained and taught arrogance of the Pharisees. Lord, I thank thee that I am not like other men. Does that fit right here? Do you see it? This is why God gave Romans chapter 2. Tearing into them, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. The list of 23 crimes in verses 29 through 31, you have committed those crimes. You know what verse 32 said. That men are worthy of death that commit those crimes. You do them. You have friends that do them. How do you think you're going to escape? We shouldn't think that way, but we also want to understand Paul's focus of his theological argument here. You've already condemned yourself. Look, Notice what Paul says. If you are going to condemn men who have committed the sins in the list of 23 from chapter 1, you have already condemned yourself because you've done those sins too. So if you say those sins are worthy of death and those that do them should be condemned, you are condemning yourself. So Romans 1 is bringing logic to bear. And a juke at this point could say, Amen. What haughty arrogance. Thinking Gentile upon Gentile. What haughty arrogance. They've condemned themselves. Then verse 2. But we are sure... That the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Not only have you condemned yourself by your reasoning, 
you're also condemned by the true judgment of God who will deal objectively and truthfully and according to righteousness in His judgment. The truth of God has already been stated in verse 32. Those that commit these sins are worthy of death. And we are sure. And brethren, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something upon which we want to be sure. Even if we have to change our opinion on the interpretation of a verse from time to time, we are going to be sure. We will hold what we believe to be sure until God shows us something more sure. And when God shows us something more sure, we're going to be sure of it. There's one thing about Christianity. It's not that we agree to disagree. It's not that we're all going to the same place. You worship God your way, Buddha, Allah, Vishnu, the Great Spirit. No, 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 no. The whole Bible is certainty of the words of truth. Solomon wrote Proverbs so that young men would be able to answer with the certain words of truth to them that would ask them. Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 21. Luke wrote the, the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, he says, I am writing you things that are most surely believed among us, that you might know the certainty of these things. This is the Word of God. We are sure, we are certain that the judgment of God is according to truth. There are no exceptions. There are no allowances. There are no extenuating circumstances when it comes to those that commit the crimes in verses 29 through 31. God is going to deal objectively. God is going to deal righteously and holily. And everyone that has committed one of those crimes is worthy of death and will die. That's what verse 2 is teaching. Much more could be said about each of these verses. And if you want more in each of these verses, there is an outline. And it's coming. It's according to truth. God judges truly. God is not going to judge by feelings. You know that the problem with life is, you have been able to snow your parents, snow your teachers, and even snow magistrates and judges in the courts of our land. However, you will not snow the God of heaven. He doesn't care about your person. Is he going to say that in verse 11? Am I getting ahead of myself or should we just put it all together? There is no respect of persons with God. And who thought they ought to be respected? Who maketh their boast of God? The Jews. There is no respect. Oh, Paul's powerful. He sets them up. He's got. Why did he start with the Gentiles? He set them up in wisdom, and then he's going to go after them all the way through the end of chapter eleven. He's going to go after them. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. Against them which commit such things. Verse 3, back to the old man. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Why in the world are you thinking this? And I want to point out right here, our thoughts are our most dangerous enemy. Why? And thinkest thou this? Don't think. Read and believe. Don't think. Thank. I don't mean that we should be puppets to the Word of God and to how it's preached, because we want to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so, but it said search the Scriptures, not your thoughts. It's the fact that they thought, look at the privileges we've got. But the whole Old Testament is written about obedience. If you'll obey, I'll bless. If you disobey, what's the word that starts with C that's five letters long that God promised He would pour out upon that nation? Curse. Curse. They were to obey. 
And thinkest thou this? Oh man, in verse 1, you've condemned yourself by logic. Oh man, in verse 2, you're condemned by God. Because you know that God's judgment is according to truth against anyone that commits these crimes. Three, what in the world are you thinking? How do you think that you're going to escape? And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, verse 1, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, verse 2, that's according to truth? On what basis do you think, you think, you think, you're going to escape the judgment of God? Paul said that the purpose of preaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus of Christ is no respecter of persons. He is going to judge the Jew first. The Jew first. Verse 9 says that, doesn't it? To the Jew first. And also, he'll judge the Gentile. Let me introduce what we'll take up after our break. It's in verse 4. I hope you understand the first three verses. They're very, they're very simple, they're very plain, they're very powerful. The Jews were very guilty of what he was saying thus far, though he says it subtly and generally, and there is plenty of value there for us as well, but it's primarily directed theologically, systematically against the Jews. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the goodness... I want to point out exactly what's being said here. Verse 3, do you think that there's some privilege you have because of your person, your ancestry, your birth, your law, your temple, your worship? Do you think that there's some reason that's going to allow you to escape this judgment of God that you know has to be according to truth against everyone that commits those crimes? You're thinking that you're going to escape. On what basis do you think you're going to escape? When you know that the judgment of God is according to truth. See, he's not telling them what it is yet. He does in 17, doesn't he? You rest in the law and make your boast of God and think because you have greater light than those dumb Gentiles that God's going to excuse you. God is not going to excuse anyone sitting in this assembly because you've heard the truth. God is going to hold every one of you sitting in this assembly to keep the truth. There is no benefit to hearing it, except it leads us to keep it. Verse 4, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. How do you despise the riches of his goodness? How do men despise God's goodness? By viewing God's goodness as implicit approval of the way you're living. A blessing comes on a man at work, he's promoted to a position that he wasn't expecting. What does the world say? He must be, he must be living right. God blessed him because he's living right. Like favors and blessings are a reward for righteousness and tacit or implied approval of the way that man is living. The world thinks that way. The Jews thought that way. How do you despise them? By taking God's goodness and basking in it and boasting of it and going on and living the same way without repenting. That's how you despise it. How do you despise God's forbearance? Forbearance means not to punish you when he should. When he could. It's mercy. It's overlooking crimes. Long-suffering. Putting up patiently with you for a long time. There, God is rich in those things. And God was very rich in those three measures to the nation of the Jews. 
How do you despise those riches? By basking in them and taking advantage of them and believing that they endorse the way that you're living and not changing your life. And so that comes to bear on us indirectly as well. We, we have been blessed better than the Jews. We have more than the Jews by every measure. You want to talk about spiritual blessings? We have the temple of the living God through Jesus Christ with a finished sacrifice. Their temple did not have a finished sacrifice. We are sitting in the temple of God this morning with a finished sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, a perpetual priest that never dies, the high priest that God accepts, who's God's son with his own precious blood. We are blessed. We live in America. We live in the 21st century. We are blessed with health, life, breath, privilege, opportunity, protection, pampered lifestyles. We have all that heart could wish. We have more than any generation has ever had in the history of the world. Do you know what it ought to do to us? Lead us to repentance. Lead us to repentance. And if you just live and bask in all this goodness and throw it down your throat and let your ears be filled with the pleasant sounds of music and all the blessings that we have, then we are despising the riches of His goodness. But this is primarily addressed to the Jews, yet there is a lesson for all of us. And let's go home from this place today committed that God's goodness will not lead us to presumption, but it will lead us to repentance. Otherwise, the next verse goes on to tell us that when God shows you the riches of His goodness, and I I want you to notice the precious play on words of the Holy Spirit of the living God, if you despise the riches of His goodness and you don't let them lead you to repentance, then you are making a treasure of. Riches treasure. If you despise the riches of God's goodness, then you're building your own treasure. When someone has a treasure, or they find a treasure, or they treasure something, what do they do? They get as much of it as they possibly can, and heap it all up so that they can have as much as they can, because they treasure that thing. But do you know what's happening? When you sin and do not repent and God is showing you all the goodness that he's showing us and all the goodness that he showed the Jews, you are treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. You are heaping up. It's as if you treasured God's increasing wrath against you. Because if God is good to you and the more good he shows you, the more you owe him. If you don't show him that by repentance then you are treasuring up. You are just scooping and gathering together as much wrath as you can against the day of wrath and righteous revelation of the judgment of God. Lord, help us. We will come back to this after our break. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Stand with me, please. I thank you, brethren, for coming out this morning to worship the God of heaven. There were 561 churches closed in our county and surrounding counties that I didn't know until just before I came. But I I thank you all for coming. May the Lord receive it as the love of our hearts to be in his house on his day under the preaching of his word. And thank you, Lord, for showing us your word. Our Father in heaven, thou art so good to us. There is no measure that we can think of whereby we are less than the most blessed. We thank Thee for the food that we're about to partake of. 
We thank Thee for Thy loving kindness toward us. We thank Thee for the riches of Thy goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, which we have known individually, collectively as a church, collectively as a nation, all the days of our lives. We are blessed abundantly. We repent. Lord, hear us. We repent for our faithlessness, our foolishness, our filthiness, and all that we have done against Thee. The 23 crimes that You have listed are our resume. We have sinned against the Lord. Hear us, O Lord, and forgive us. We know that Your goodness toward us is not an endorsement of our sin in any one of those areas. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that You will grant us the gift of repentance. As Paul told Timothy, that we might be recovered from the snare of the devil if we are ever taken captive by him at his will. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we take a break. Strengthen our bodies with the food. Bless the hands that prepared it. Cause our fellowship to encourage and provoke one another to love and to good works. We thank thee for the word of God. We fear the great day of judgment, but not too much, O Lord. For we know that we have a mediator standing there that shall deliver us from the wrath to come in that great day. Keep us by your mighty power from treasuring up any more wrath against that day. But let us live humbly, circumspectly, full of repentance and seeking righteousness with all our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.